Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Adam Dorsey, a psychologist in Silicon Valley, and I am the host of Super Psyched, a podcast dedicated to supercharging your life. Each episode contains fun, high-quality interviews with experts looking at psychology from all angles. Super Psyched is your tool to get more of what you want in your life and less of what you don't. I love stories that blow my mind, and this interview contains a few. Imagine going to Stanford, playing football there for four years, and after graduation, getting recruited to the San Francisco 49ers, and on the same year, entering medical school at Stanford. Wait, what? Starting with the 49ers and entering medical school at the same time? How is that possible? My guest, Dr. Milt McCall, played football in the NFL primarily for the 49ers, winning two Super Bowl rings alongside Joe Montana. After practice and during the offseason, he attended classes at Stanford Medical School, earning his MD over the course of several years. After graduating, he opted to work in the corporate sector, and he was very successful. However, when he was 55 years old, he realized he had some unfinished business. He had never completed a residency and specialized. Milt took a huge pay cut, began his residency program that year with residents, the majority of whom were young enough to be his children. He completed his residency when he was nearly 60 and now specializes in family medicine and continues to work in medical technology as well. So join Milton and me as we discuss the focus and hard work that leads to excellence in three distinctly different worlds. Dr. Milt McCall, who has asked me to call him Milt, welcome to Super Psyched. Thanks so much, Adam. So, Milt, when you were a little boy, what did you have in mind as your dream job? So it's kind of interesting because when I was in elementary school, uh, I remember they um, made us put in our yearbook what we wanted to do when we grew up. And uh, I was fortunate. Uh, my father actually played professional football for the Chicago Bears. He was a uh, you know, runner-up for the Heisman Trophy. He was a really incredible athlete in his time in the 1950s, played for Stanford, played for Chicago Bears afterwards, and was also a doctor. And so when I was growing up, I had um, athletics in my family, in my family genes. I was fortunately gifted with some of it. And I had already put down that I wanted to be a professional athlete under when they, in the yearbook. And then ironically, when I went to high school, I was ended up voting to be most likely to succeed in my high school class. <laughs> They asked us to dress up, the woman and I, that were, were, were the two winners, to dress up on what we thought our future careers would be. She dressed up as a judge, and I think she actually is a judge today. <laughs> I ended up dressing up as a, a pro football uh, player. Actually, as a, I'm sorry, as a, not a pro football player, as a doctor in that thing. So she was a doc, I was a doctor, she was a, uh, a lawyer and a judge. And so I ended up sort of doing both of those things in my life, as you probably uh, know and are aware of. So I do know, and I'm very aware of that. Um, so, and, and I'm delighted by it. It's just, it's, it's, it, 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 I mean, to have grown up in the shadow of the great Bill McCall, who did both things, almost like being the son of James Bond, uh, who was like, I'm a football player and I'm a doctor. It's just, a, it's, it, that, that's, those are pretty big shoes to fill and, and fill them you did. I find myself wondering when you're at cocktail parties and people ask you, so, Milt, what do you do? What do you say? Well, I guess nowadays we don't have a lot of cocktail parties. <laughs> right, right. Not, not a common thing to do too much of. But um, 
Well, right now, I tell people what I'm doing currently because that's really what kind of I'm passionate about. Um, you know, I'm a family physician. I went back at age 55. I'd always had my medical license, so I, I played football and went to medical school um, at Stanford and played for the 49ers back in the 1980s. Won a couple Super Bowl rings at the time, and that was all very nice. I went into business for a long time and ran companies and did venture capital and investing. But sort of at age 55, I just had this passion, desire to go back and be a physician again. And uh, I had actually been volunteering at a free clinic in San Francisco on the side, like once a month, just on week, um, you know, for a half a day. And I was sitting around one day with the other doctors and joking about, I had my license, but I didn't have a lot of knowledge. I was kind of, it's been so long since I practiced medicine. And one of them told me, hey, you should go back and do a residency. You'd really learn a lot. And I said, well, yeah, great. That's crazy. First of all, who would want me? Number one. And number two is, you know, that's a lot of work to do at age 55. Residencies are not uh, made for the faint of heart. Um, but uh, as I thought about it. It took me about a year and a half to sort of get the courage to do it. Um, but I went in and actually uh, contacted a few residency programs. Had a couple of them tell me, uh, you're really not the type of person that you don't met our model. Uh, they didn't say I was too old. Of course, I can't say that. But uh, legally, um, there were some organizations that I know that they like to train you and then keep you on for the next 30 years. And uh, uh, I certainly wasn't the person, although I might practice medicine until I'm 90, you never know. Um, I don't think I fit their sort of uh, typical resident. Um, so in the end, I did actually uh, apply and went into the match and I got matched. There were a couple of places that said they'd be very interested in me. And more importantly, uh, the Stanford O'Connor program right here in San Jose, California, uh, said we'd love to have you. And I ended up matching and spent the next three years learning as much medicine as I could. And all I wanted to do was just pass my boards, which I did at the very end. So that's absolutely incredible. And let's just rewind a little bit. You were deeply entrenched in medical sciences as it pertained to the business sector, as well as venture capital, uh, really tearing it up on those fronts. And I would think to muster the conviction, take a very thoughtful demotion, so to speak, uh, and basically be a grunt in a residency program at 55 took a ton of conviction. Uh, can you describe to me the thought processes? I know you wanted to learn more, but that we all want to learn more. That That's going the next level. That's Rocky Balboa level uh, conviction. How did you, can you describe the thought process that caused you to go there? So let's see, in my career, I was uh, at one point, I was president of a division of Boston Scientific. I think I had at least a thousand people in the organization that reported in through me. Um, I was a, uh, a um, you know, venture capitalist on boards of multiple companies. And ironically, um, it was very interesting that I would go back to a job where I was the absolute lowest person on the totem pole. My, uh, my bosses were the residents in my program that um, basically were my kids' age. Um, exactly. But they knew much more about medicine than I knew, that's for sure. And I learned a ton from them and they all accepted me. Uh, it was funny. One time with my intern class, I was driving around with another, uh, with the eight of us. And I got very close with all my uh, fellow interns during that year. Um, and one, one of the uh, other interns was a little bit older like me. She had, she had, had uh, kids that were in her in their almost 20s. And they called us mom and dad as we did. Uh. 
the van and I'd be driving the van and then there would be the kids in the back that were all my kids age. So they all joked about that, but, but I learned a ton from them and yeah, I had to swallow a little bit of pride. I mean, I had to basically become, um, my ego had to be left at the door when I started the internship. I knew that was going to be the, the case. And I did that. I was very comfortable doing that because my goal was to learn as much as I could. That's why I went back. It's so fun to do something in life when you don't really like a lot of times early on when I was trying to apply for medical school, you're learning to get grades and try to you know, get into the right program and, and make yourself look impressive or get into the next thing. I was there for one reason. One reason was to learn as much about medicine as I could so I could go out and be a doctor and be the best doctor I could. And so your motivation is very, very different at that stage in life. Indeed it is. And one of the things that you and I actually share, and you may not know this about me, is that I spent nearly two decades in the corporate sector before becoming a psychologist. And I entered my postdoc as a 40-year-old where virtually everybody else was in their 20s. So I have a similar uh, experience. And in this day and age, people are pivoting in their careers, trying something new, something that wasn't happening in my father's and your father's generation uh, pretty much at all. And I was wondering if you were to give a message to people who are considering a career change, what might it sound like? So let me tell you, it was not an easy decision. I mean, you know, here I had, I had done well in life. Uh, finances were not an issue for me at that stage. Um, I, what I found was I was waking up in the morning, not looking forward to what I was doing every day. And in my past, I had always had that. And maybe it's just because I had I don't know, maybe I had suffered burnout. Uh, I mm -hmm. think after basically 30 years of doing the industry side of things, um, you know, small startups, as most recently was a CEO and co-founder of a startup company. I'd been doing that for five years and those are very, very taxing, um, you know, a lot of stress uh, trying to get a company that, you know, off the ground basically. Um, and I remember going to my co-founder who was my kid's age, um, great, brilliant, um, a young guy out of out of Stanford, the program that I met him in. And uh, I said, I think it's time for you to run the company. It's time for me to step step away. And he took over and he's done great there. Uh, he's got much more energy than I have, at least that stage in life. And I went off to do my residencies, but I still keep up. I'm chairman of the board of the company. So we still talk very regularly. We're doing some really interesting things in the middle of COVID right now. Um, but it was a time in my life to go do something else. And, um, you know, fortunately, uh, my family supported it. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of on-call nights. Uh, I got fortunate they did have a little change in the system. When I did an internship 30 years ago, we would work usually every third night uh, straight on through for 36 hours. You don't get mm. sleep at all. They, they've, they've lightened those loads a little bit. So it was a little more uh, realistic for me and my age to do it. So, but uh, Incredible. One of the things that your description calls to mind is the idea of meaning and challenge. These two are very important descriptors, meaning and challenge, and they are predictive of a phenomenon called flow. So uh, I imagine that you're more, in, I, you seem so happy about what you're doing. I mean, we talked a little bit offline and I could tell that you love what you're doing right now. And I have to attribute part of it to the idea that you're in flow states and that it is intrinsically fascinating for you to do. And it's intrinsically meaningful for you to provide service at the level you're providing service. So at the end of this massive effort at this stage in life, 
when many people are actually winding down their careers, you are beginning to step on the gas. And I have to ask you, has it been worth it so far? So it's interesting that you say about flow, because I've actually read about that before. It's not new new concept to me. I know they, they talk about surgeons being in the flow, you know, doing yeah. an eight or nine hour surgery, not even knowing the time went by. Exactly. Um, musicians become in the flow. I'm not a musician myself, but my kids, a couple of my kids are very, my wife is a very good musician. And so people that are doing musical things, they get into the flow. And I've heard about this before. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, that's what's kind of happened to me. You know, I feel like when I'm in doing the things that I want to be doing, I, I have a reason that, you know, I'm 61 years old now, and I feel really fortunate. A lot of my friends don't share the same passion of wanting to wake up and go to work in the morning and doing what I do. I mean, every job, every occupation, every student always has times when things aren't great. And there's always challenges and things that make life difficult. But for the most part, I feel very fortunate that what I'm doing this stage in my life, I have a passion about. And I, it gets me up in the morning to, to, to say it in a simple a simple way. You know, one of the things that I'm taking profound delight in just hearing as you're describing is uh, the idea of retirement, according to a former guest of mine, Dr. Mario Martinez, a neuropsychologist who wrote a book on biocognition uh, called The Mind-Body Code. And he said, instead of retiring, we should look at it as a, a putting new tires on our car and continuing the drive. Right. And that seems to be exactly what you've done. Well, I think it was uh, Confucius that said it once, if uh, find something you love to do and if somebody will pay you to do it, you never work a day in your life. Um, and that's kind of what I've been fortunate about. And it's been a lot of my career that way. But I got to tell you, there's been plenty of times in my life where I haven't been happy with what I was doing. And I, my recommendation is to people, you know, don't sit there and gripe about it. I mean, you can't be someone who makes constant changes in your life. You know, I used to hire people a lot when I was running companies and the last thing I ever wanted to see was, you know, multiple, you know, changing of jobs every one year or two years, because that just shows somebody they're unhappy. But, you know, when you've been doing something for four or five years and it's not, you're not in the flow, you're not in sync with things, you know, to just gut it out until you get into retirement or until you get your pension, that just sounds like what a terrible way to have to live, you know, go find something else to do that you can, you can be passionate about. And, uh, you know, don't worry about what they pay you or what your status is going to be. Find something you love to do. And that's what I've been fortunate to do right now. Now, I have to be honest with you. I don't work full time now. And that's been nice ever since residency. I mean, residency was 80 hour weeks uh, pretty commonly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but that's, but that's pretty normal during residency and, and, and not a lot of time off. Um, but I would say now I'm kind of half time in medicine. Uh, I still keep my finger into the company I've been involved with, the most recent company. And it does give me a lot more time to do some of my own, you know, sort of recreational things like, you know, try to improve my golf game, which doesn't do much. And <laughs> I, I learned to fly airplanes late in life too. So I actually am a private pilot. So I do like to make sure I keep my pilot skills up too. So, so let's talk a little bit about football and the preparation. Let's go back a few years. And in addition, in addition to you know, being a great athlete, you did your undergraduate studies at Stanford. And it's no small task to balance a demanding scholarship and athletics at that level. And then while you were in the NFL itself, you'd play for the Niners and do medical school at Stanford during the offseason. How, how, how do you do that? How do you balance all that? So I, I could tell you my 
First of all, I went back to my father, who I mentioned earlier. My father's fortunately very, he's still living. He's in his 90s now. He lives in Southern California. Um, you know, he's in good health. And, and my mother, I've been very fortunate, both of them. Um, he, uh, he, he set some, some things for me, set up some things for me by um, showing me how I could do some things. So he went to Stanford also, I think, as I mentioned before, and went to medical school and then actually did uh, three years of, of orthopedic residency during his, um, you know, f- football career. Now football was a lot different back in the fifties than it was um, George Hallis, his coach actually rearranged practice schedules uh, for the Chicago bears so that bill could go to his labs that he needed to do in the afternoon. So they switched the practice from the afternoons to the mornings around right. his schedule. Now he was a very high draft pick and he was a very you know, important person on their team. I uh, was so my my father had told me as an undergraduate, he said, if you ever want to do this, you know, go to the medical school your senior year, take some classes. Uh, So I did. I took uh, the first first year medical school classes. Um, And so I kind of had that under my belt. I, you know, I was playing for Stanford. I'd been told I might get drafted in somewhere in the middle rounds of the NFL draft. Um, Unfortunately, that year ended up not being. Uh, I, I do remember sitting around the day they did the NFL draft. And back then we didn't have cell phones. We just sat by our landlines and you would sit in your dorm room and you waited for the team to call you after they drafted you. They didn't have all this television, you know, um, um, you know, the fanfare that they have today. So I sat there and waited all day long. I never got a phone call from me. Oh my gosh. So I wasn't drafted. I'd already been accepted into, um, medical school, actually a couple of schools that already accepted me. And I kind of just agreed I was going to go on to medical school. That was my plan. Um, I think the fact that I went overseas uh, my junior year during the springtime, I went and studied for Stanford in Italy and studied in uh, England because I just wanted to you know, experience that part of life. A lot of the students get to do that. And most football players don't. I wasn't around for spring football. That probably didn't help too much when the pro scouts came around looking for us. Uh, and, and, uh, but I just felt passionate about what I wanted to do. I wanted to learn Italian. I wanted to experience the world a little bit. Um, so that probably didn't set me up for the draft. And they all, they all knew I was going to medical school too. So, but what happened was uh, my college coach had been Bill Walsh. And uh, he, I think he knew what I could do. He had just gone on to the 49ers a couple of years um, before, while I was my, my later years at Stanford. And um, the 49ers called me and asked me if I would sign as a free agent and just try out for the team as a walk-on, basically. Um, I literally thought that I would be there about three weeks. Uh, I would get beat up by all the, um, you know, the, the, the uh, veterans. Um, they would use me as kind of target meat for the practice squad during training camp. And then right before that, I'd probably get released and end up in medical school. But they're going to pay me $1,000 to do that. And I thought that was a pretty good deal. Uh, <laughs> I, I had already planned to buy a stereo with it. That's what <laughs> And so I ended up signing with the uh, 49ers. And in, uh, ironically, during training camp, um, things went really well. And the guy ahead of me that they had paid all the money for, um, unfortunately, got uh, injured the very first day of rookie camp. And I got every single play for the next few weeks. Um, the good news, uh, the bad news is I got beat up really badly. The good news is I learned very quickly how to play. And I, I think my, my, my learning curve was very steep, but uh, in the end, I ended up making the team as a rookie. 
in the same week that uh, the 49ers announced their final roster for the for the league, I got a note from Stanford that said I had been on the wait list for medical school and I was they would like to know if I wanted to come to Stanford. I don't know if it, they knew anything about it. I don't think they even knew I was playing football at the time. It was just ironic. <laughs> These two things came together at the same time. And here I was, I was going to make the 49ers. I was living in the Bay Area. I'd already done the first, you know, first half year of medical school at Stanford, as my dad had recommended. So I went, I raced over to the dean's office that day when I got the letter and I said, hey, I'd like to play pro football and go to medical school. By the way, I've already done the first quarter, so you don't really need me around the first quarter a whole lot. Um, I did have to take anatomy. Um, I would go to practice and then I would sneak out of practice at the end of practice at about three o'clock and run over to the anatomy lab and finish my cadaver dissection. Um, luckily, my cadaver partner was a great friend from college um, in medical school, and he ended up being a spine surgeon, a great spine surgeon at the University of Washington. That's where he is now. Um, but he loved having the cadaver by himself. By the time I got there, he had dissected everything out perfectly. And so I would show up and have him show me what I just did on our, on our shared cadaver. <laughs> and I passed, I passed anatomy with a Wally Kringle helping me through. Um, so it just ended up that I had prepared myself. And as my father used to say, you know, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. I'm kind of a big believer in that one. There's no real luck in life. You have to prepare your luck. And so I got lucky. So I ended up um, doing my, uh, my first year of medical school at Stanford. Um, I had to come out. I had about half of the classes done. So I still had to do a little bit of work. I had to go to the, the um, uh, histology lab. I would just go up by uh, 10 o'clock at night. I'd be up there on the microscopes by myself in the lab, just looking through all the slides, seeing if I could catch up with all my, my classmates. Um, and uh, so I ended up getting through that quarter. And as ironically, we, um, we lost two of our first three games that year, uh, but then we ended up winning um, 13 in a row and winning the Super Bowl. Uh, and in the first Super Bowl for the 49ers again, I'm getting a Super Bowl ring and being a part of that team. So it was a magical Cinderella year for me. So that was an incredible year. I remember Hacksaw Reynolds right. and that moment that just that moment that he prevented that touchdown, that impossible moment. And you played an important part in that Super Bowl game yourself. You did some pretty cool things. And I'm just thinking about the brutality of medical school alone. I mean, it's kind of the Navy SEALs of, of academia and being in the NFL, kind of the Navy SEALs of sports. And I'm thinking about, you know, practicing against people like Bubba Paris and, you know, getting just, just nailed by him or somebody like him, because uh, that was a really good that was a really good offensive line that you had to go up practice with. This was not kids play. So you were bruised and you were looking at through the microscope at, in the histology lab while you were in pain, I'm guessing. So first of all, you're, you're dating yourself because you're coming up with names. I don't think my kids know the names. <laughs> I know, Paris and oh, I, I mean, I watched that Super Bowl. Come on. The refrigerator. I mean, he was the, you know, for the Chicago Bears, the big guy that they put in the backfield. But it's <laughs> interesting you mentioned the goal line stand because I actually, um, uh, I had a very famous play on that that play, but nobody knows about it. And the reason was I was on the field right before the goal line stand uh, the last couple plays. And because um, I was on that kind of defense and then we switched the defense around. And so I saw the signal from the sideline. And when you're on the goal line, you got to get out of there fast because you got to run all the way across the field to the to the 
um, where you are. And the other person is supposed to come in for you and know that the switch is happening. So I saw the signal and I ran off the field and the guy that was supposed to fill in for me didn't see the signal. And we ended up playing with 10 players on one <gasps> of the plays on the goal line stand. And it was, I was the one that was not there. And luckily they didn't run the ball right over where I was missing where the guy was supposed to be that was replacing me. So, so that was my famous play on the line stand was I disappeared and nobody took my spot and we still stopped them with 10 men. So I thought that was fantastic. So, uh, and then the other thing, I had another great play in the Super Bowl, and this is the old uh, preparation meets opportunity. Um, I recovered a fumble right before halftime, but recovering a fumble just means you're standing around at the right time in the right place, and the ball comes pulling <laughs> to, and you drop on it. So that's that's what I did. I was in the right place at the right time, and the ball came to me. So we ended up scoring uh, scoring right then, and that made a big difference in the game. But yeah, it was a four point game, if I recall. So I yeah, mean, that really made a big difference. Um, yeah, preparedness meeting opportunity. I believe that quote is attributable to Earl Nightingale, mm-hmm. one of the fathers of self-improvement. Uh, and I love that quote. Uh, I agree with your father. What a great thing to teach one's son. Um, I'm going to be talking a little bit about maxims and uh, ideas that can help a person actually change one's life. Uh, to become a 49er, you know, required a sacrifice in a long path of training, both mentally and physically. And I'm wondering about those thoughts, like the preparedness meeting opportunity or thoughts, uh, maxims, mantras that might have helped you along the way to becoming an NFLer. So I think, you know, one of the stories that kind of, I think, goes in line with this was, uh, so when I made the when I made the 49ers and I told you I went to Stanford and asked them if I could go to medical school and Stanford was very open minded to it. They said, yeah, we'd love to have you. I'd show them that I already actually got some good grades in the medical school classes I had taken. So they they felt comfortable that I could probably, you know, manage both of them together. And I explained how I was going to do that. I didn't really say anything to the 49ers at the time. Um, my thinking was, this is what I'd always done. I'd gone to practice all day long and I go home and studied at night. That's what I did all through college and carried you know, heavy loads and actually did usually my best, my best college grade work was during the football season because you get, you get very regimented what you do. So I didn't say anything to the coaching staff. I, I would go to practice and as soon as practice is when I'd kind of quickly head off to the, you know, the, the laboratories I mentioned to you. Well, about three games into the season, I got a call to go speak with Bill Walsh and he doesn't call you up to his office very often. And whenever the head coach calls you, you're not sure what that's going to be about. I remember that conversation. It was probably 35 years ago, 40 years ago. Uh, to the day, I remember it exactly. Um, he, uh, he, he, I sat down in his office. He closed the door. He looked at me. It was, it was about a 10-second conversation. He said, Milt, I don't think you're focusing on football um, like you were before. And if you don't get your act together, we're going to have to find somebody else. And, you know, it just knocked me off my feet. You For know? sure. I, you know, in college, they don't cut you in college. You, you know, you're a scholarship player. You stay there forever until you graduate, basically. And that's kind of the way it works. Um, but what he was basically telling me is, I'm not happy with what you're doing. He said in his uh, very uh, obscure language, he said, I know you're focusing on something else. And I think he figured out that I was going to medical school and I hadn't said anything to him about it. And it was his way of saying, we're paying you a lot of money to be a pro football team. By the way, we've just lost two of our first three games. And I'm not, as a head coach, he was not in a great position. He was not feeling, uh, feeling the love from his own owner, I'm sure. Um, 
But uh, I got the message. I, I actually, I was very shook up by it. I went home I would think. and called my dad that night and said, dad, you know what, what's going on here? And he says, well, Mel, you know, they're, they're paying you a lot of money and you just have to show them that your football is the most important thing in your life um, right now. And the way you do that is you, uh, you stay after practice. You're the last one to leave. You, you do more wind sprints. <clears throat> you hit the, hit the sleds. You study more film. You do everything to convince them that, that you're the most committed football player that they have on the team. Um, and then go do your medical school stuff after that. Oh. And for me, I was like, I, I figured I don't go out to the beer. I don't go drinking beer every night like a lot of the guys did and stayed out late and partied and stuff. I happened to go home and study. I mean, that was just kind of what I was doing with life. It's that stage of my life. So I did exactly what he said. And uh, in the next couple of games, I made some good plays and I had made sure the coach saw them. And as I uh, emphasized the plays after I made them and I ended up never hearing from Coach Walsh about that again, I did. I, I did stop bringing my books on the team plane when I used to read my medical books while we're flying back east for five hours. I would books, but I learned to cover the books up with something and not quite so obvious about what I was doing. So maybe that's where I kind of gave myself away. But in the end, it worked out. And by the third or fourth year, nobody cared about what I was doing as long as I was playing well and we were winning games. So were your teammates, though, on some level asking you, come on, Milt, what's going on? I never see you at the beer outings. I never. What's going on with you, man? Well, I still had a social life too. So I didn't do everything. It just, you know, certain days of the week I had certain things to do, but, um, I mean, I, one of my, one of my reasons for picking Stanford when I decided to, to go there was, um, I thought it was the best combination of, you know, major college football, great academics, but also social. I was in a fraternity. I, I enjoyed my, my, uh, my fun too. So, um, but I, I made sure to be a part of the team too. And, and those are, I mean, those are my friends, probably my three closest friends in life are the, the guys I played football with. Uh, we still get together once a year um, and uh, still talk all the old stories and the stories get better and better every year as we are <laughs> hitting our 60s now. We're still talking stories from 40 years ago about uh, how great we used to be and we get greater and greater every year. We <laughs> <laughs> And these are guys who were on the on that Super Bowl team? Oh yeah, right. Yeah, my uh, my roommate was a guy named Ron Ferrari, who was a linebacker. Um, Bill Ring, who was uh, um, uh, one of our running backs, and uh, and the other one uh, is a guy named Rick Jervis. And we kind of all um, get together in our, our our special group. Is we we have a special group. You couldn't have been drafted, and you had to be one of the lowest uh, paid salaries on the team. That's what <laughs> we call ourselves the the average players. So, so you were one of the lower paid. Yeah. It's it's interesting. We had a one of the, one of the best things. Eddie DeBarlo was our owner at the time, just yeah. for the team, um, and just had so much success. Five Super Bowls as the owner, and uh, he put on a big uh, party in, in Las Vegas um, that was celebrating all the the Super Bowls. This was after he was no longer the owner. This was probably about twenty years ago, and uh, at that night it was they invited everybody back from the team, any of the Super Bowl teams. It was all the players, the coaches, anybody administration, all the sports writers, anybody that had anything to do with it. And Eddie comped everything. It was just an incredible event for three or four days. Um, we showed up at the hotel and every, you know, every, every expense was taken care of. And on the very last night, there was a black tie dinner and uh, they were kind of honoring all the different uh, people. And Bill Walsh was there, of course, and George Seifert, the coaches and Eddie. <laughs> Of course, and legends. Walsh, Walsh got up to speak, 
And uh, he says, I'm frequently asked as the head coach, what made the success of our team so great during the uh, during those years in the 80s? And he said, everybody knows about the Joe Montanas and the Steve Youngs and the Jerry Rices. You know, those guys were superstars and they, of course, made the team. But he believed it was the uh, guys on the bottom third of the roster that really made the team work. He said, guys like Milt McCall, Bill Ring, Rick Jervis, and we're all sitting at this table looking at each other and said, were we on the bottom third of the roster? Is that the way we were, that the way we were thought? In some regards, we kind of were. We were the you know, smart, hardworking, you know, dedicated you know, guys that weren't, we didn't come in with the great talent. We didn't have the speed or the size or the, you know, the, the natural talent. So we had to make it on hard work and, uh, you know, and, and gruel. And, uh, so we, we all laugh. We call ourselves the bottom third of the roster now. So, you know, I think that Bill Walsh is a legend for a good many reasons. One of which is what you just said, that he recognized that the people who were carrying the team were often the unsung heroes. I just interviewed, uh, District Attorney Jeff Rosen, who is a very, he embodies servant leadership. And I'm guessing that, you know, Bill Walsh did too, by all accounts. And the recognition of the importance of everyone, including the so-called bottom third, differentiated Bill Walsh from the pack as a truly great leader. That's where I go. What do you think? Well, I think what he's really saying is that in any sport, um, you have your team and you have your superstars. And of course, games are won and lost by what the superstars do because you have to make sure you have them. But you never know when someone is going to go down and be injured. And somebody has to be able to be by to step in and take over immediately and not have a have a drop off. And I know for my own sake, part of the reason that in the first few years of my career, I was most valuable is I didn't have to take any practice plays. I knew the place. I knew what everybody on the team did. Every defensive position, every play, I knew what they did. Just, I just was my strength. I had, you know, a pretty good understanding of, uh, you know, I, I could talk with the coaches any day about, you know, where the defenses were going and what we we're doing. It just happened to be I was, you know, mentally I was very much into the game, and so even when the guy ahead of me got injured, I could step right in and without even taking the practice plays, not not miss a step. And I think that's a little bit about what he was saying. It's really important to have the guys right behind it that can do that as well as during practice, making sure we're doing all the things. Now I was fortunate. I ended up starting in the NFL for a few years later in my career. Um, <clears throat> I still guess I was on the bottom third of the roster according to Bill, but you never know how that goes. So, but he always took great care of me and I've always appreciated that about him. So. So I'm really fascinated with something you just said, and it calls to mind the idea of having range. Uh, you, we're studying in medical school, which I would think pumps up one's hippocampus, the, the memory region of the brain, more than just about anything in the world. I mean, the volumes of material you must, uh, I should say the volume of material you must remember is exorbitant. And I imagine you were able to apply your super memory, almost like a uh, taxi driver in London, uh, to the field when you were playing football. Did that, does that translate well to you? In terms of the that idea, so I I am fortunate. If you compare me against most football players, I probably um, just have you know the ability to maybe remember things better or have a better memory. I certainly, when I go to medicine, there's a lot of doctors that are way smarter than me, and they can 
you know, remember facts way better than I can, can remember, particularly in my older ages. I was going back through, you know, residency at the late stages in life. But I was gifted in the, in the fact that uh, I wasn't as fast as a lot of the players. I wasn't as talented athletically, but I studied film really hard. I knew the plays. I knew what other teams did. And I was fortunate that on the, on the field, a lot of times I could just have a pretty good feel about what might be happening. And that gave me just a bit of a jump to be on top of things. Um, so I think it clearly made me a better player than I would have been if I didn't have that, uh, that ability. Yeah, I was just recently listening to a podcast with Adam Grant, who was describing the Rams head coach as having a super memory and how that played out on the football field. And I was just kind of imagining you with having a very good memory relative to uh, other football players uh, and how valuable that skill was and that you were actually pumping it up through your medical school studies uh, through that form of edification. Like, wow. Um, what is it like to prepare to go on the field and to actually be on the field during a Super Bowl game? So, in all honesty, the game is just like any other game you play in. I mean, it's um, I mean, you prepare essentially the same way. You you study the film as hard as you can. You look at the player you're going to be across that's either going to be blocking you or you have to cover and pass routes. You try to figure out something that they give themselves away. Little things you can study is, you know, how much pressure is on their hand. If they're on a running game, a running play, the lineman's going to have a little more pressure on his hand because they're going to be leaning forward. If it's a pass play, they're probably going to have pressure off of their hand because uh, they're going to be backing up when they when they start moving. I mean, there's little things that you learn. I mean, so like what are the stances? I, I used to always focus on how far apart the stances were on the linemen. If the linemen keep their feet really close to each other, um, they're going to be, it's going to be a pass play because they're going to want to have a pocket to protect their quarterback. If it's a running play, they want to stretch out the defense. So they tend to take wider splits at the front. The offensive line does that intentionally. They do that. But every little thing like that, if you can pay attention to it, it does give you just a little bit of an edge to know, well, this is probably going to be a running player. This is probably going to be a pass play and allows you to do some things differently that makes you more effective. So uh, it's studying that film that just, you know, um, really can make a huge um, difference in football. And it's probably maybe other sports don't quite have as much of that. But the game was just a game. It was, it didn't, in spite of kind of the sacred status of the Super Bowl, you just approached it as a game. Yeah, except after the game, because if you win, it's really <laughs> <laughs> Then we what won, was that like? We won our first Super Bowl in Detroit. It was in 1981. It was that after that goal line stance that you talked about. Uh, and, and remember that that was a time when uh, those that are old enough to know Joe Montana at the time was playing. Um, you know, th this he was only in his third year. He had not really come out as a, a great quarterback. They ended up being um, Dwight Clark, who was, uh, has oh. passed away. Um, but so you know, sad. one of our great players for that. But most of the people on that team were unsung heroes. They they, they didn't have the name re recognition uh, that we have today of all those people. They were many of them were in their first or second years in the league, like I was. Mm -hmm. um, and so the fact that we were sort of underrated, uh, the Cinderella team and to win it all was fantastic. And then on top of that, um, after the game, we were in Detroit, the weather was just brutally cold, had a big party in the, uh, the hotel afterwards, and it was completely packed in the ballroom with everybody. You know, I, I remember the, the, the coaches hugging all the coaches and kissing and you know, things you would never think about doing in an environment because everybody was so uh, elated after the win. So that was probably the best party I've ever been to my life. So I imagine. And then you went back to medical school. 
<laughs> then actually I had to, we came back, we flew back from Detroit the next day. We had the, uh, the big um, party down in San Francisco. They had the parade sure. all the way through market street. There was about a million people there. They oh had my God. And, um, and then it became a little anticlimactic because I literally had to get back because I had missed the first four, four weeks of the quarter because we were playing in the playoffs and we were into February already and school had started the first week of January. So I was already four weeks behind. And I still remember the next day um, after all the parades and everything had settled down, I had school to start the next morning. So I, I, I got to class and I was a little, running a little bit late. And uh, I think it was an eight o'clock class and I showed up at about 801 or 802 and I was sneaking in the back of the room. Well, apparently <laughs> they had put the word out and uh, they had all the students had come early that day. There was 85 students in my class and a couple of professors. They had snuck in and had a huge cake and they turned on the lights when I walked in and they had a big banner and they'd been following me all through the super. I hadn't even met half my classmates because the season had gone so long. I was still waiting to meet a bunch of them. <laughs> and, uh, I was just going to sneak into class. <laughs> so we had a big party and celebrated the 49er victory. And the fact they actually knew somebody on the team that was happening. So That is so awesome. That is just so awesome. I, I imagine that people really knew you at medical school as that guy who's on the Niners. Um, and that must have felt, you, you don't strike me as a, a showboaty kind of guy, not even remotely. What was that like for you to be six foot six in medical school and obviously the NFLer. Well, I have to tell you, it's even not even, even today I run into people. And one of the things about my uh, medical education is it took me a little longer than most people ended up being about seven years um, through the, through basically my medical school and my uh, residency uh, or internship, my first internship. So I had this kind of extended time period and I have so many people I've run into over time that have said, oh, Melt, I was in your medical school class. And I'm like, okay, which one was it? <laughs> I was in so many different classes because it took me so many extra years to get through. So I have, uh, rather than just a normal class of people, I have about four times as many people that were in my class with me. And I think they tend to remember me because I was, you know, I, we played another Super Bowl in 84 and won another one. And those were all the days when the 49ers were kind of in there in their prime, I'd say back in the 1980s. And of course, in the 90s, we won some more Super Bowls too. But um, so I guess I have this uh, unusual circumstance of having more classmates than anybody around that I know of. That's right. You have a huge entourage of, of, of classmates. As we've mentioned, your father, Bill McCall, footballer, a great physician. Uh, your son, Patrick, is involved with major league baseball he's in the a's organization what's what's in the drinking water at your household i mean what are what are how how do you teach time management how do you what what do you what do you what types of lessons do you hope to imbue that have in in from your father beyond uh luck is opportunity uh i mean preparedness meeting opportunity what what are some of the things that What's going on at the McCall household that's creating this? Yeah, so my son Patrick's uh, 22 years old now. He, uh, he, he kind of bucked the family tradition. My wife and I had met at Stanford. My three older sons all ended up going to Stanford. One played baseball there. <laughs> one was a swimmer. Uh, one was a water polo rugby player. So they all kind of were athletic at the same time. My wife was a, a great swimmer in, in her youth. 
Um, but he kind of bucked the, the crowd and um, got uh, got a, a note from, from Harvard to see if he'd go out and play baseball at Harvard. And before he even decided anything else, he'd made a decision he wanted to go to Harvard and play baseball. So he played uh, New England baseball for four years. Um, while he was there at Harvard, um, he, uh, he actually excelled at his baseball. Uh, he's six foot seven like I am. He's a first baseman. Uh, and in fact, during, uh, during his senior year, he was leading the uh, country or the top five in the country in hitting and in, in both average and also had, you know, very strong, uh, um, you know, home run, you know, he's a big guy, he can hit the ball a long way. Um, he had a walk-off grand slam against Yale in the Harvard-Yale game, which was probably one of his greatest, uh, you oh, know, gosh. memories that he has. There's no, yeah. no better way to end the, 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 the Harvard-Yale game than end up with a walk-off grand slam, <laughs> you know? After being behind eight eight runs starting the ninth inning, you know. So, oh no, kidding! Yeah, that was just incredible. But he uh, he ended up uh, um, ironically getting the uh, uh, hitting the the um, the most hits of a Harvard player ever uh, in his career there. And the guy that he beat out happened to be the uh, guy who's the uh, general manager at the A's. So the guy was a Harvard guy. He had watched him play. And so he ended up being drafted by the A's, whether that had anything to do with it, I have no, no idea. But um, unfortunately, though, he got drafted by the A's and he's, this was his you know, year to, to, to start. They, they came out for their training camp in, in uh, you know, February and he had gotten there early to do some work in. And unfortunately, because of COVID, they shut down the whole minor league system this year. So he was, he's at home now working out, lifting weights, uh, running every day and trying to stay in shape. And uh, hopefully they'll have a minor league season next year. Hopefully so. And uh, I, mean, I have to ask the question again, because it, it may be, it may be modesty that's keeping you from answering it, but I have to ask, what is, what are the McCall's doing? That is, you know, your, what did your dad do? What are you doing that is creating this level of greatness, Stanford and athletic, athletic ship? It's not common. Yeah, I don't. Maybe it's in the genes a little bit. I don't know. I think we've been fortunate to get the right DNA. That probably helps a little bit. Um, I think we do have a kind of a mentality that, you know, you need to kind of work hard at what you're doing, um, but also have fun uh, in doing it. So um, obviously being six foot seven, I know for me, it helped in football being a, a, you know, height and speed make a big difference. And my son Patrick has that. He's He's got, uh, you know, the six foot seven frame. It comes in really handy when you're trying to hit, you know, the ball a long way in baseball. Um, so, um, and then I think fortunately they all got my wife who's a, you know, she's much smarter than I am. They got her brain. So <laughs> combination uh, seemed to work out pretty well for all the kids and they're all doing really well in life right now. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that Patrick has a huge strike zone. So it, it while it's an advantage, it's an adv- a disadvantage simultaneously. So he's somehow able to compensate for that. That's incredible uh, to be a hitter at that height. Um, Tell him to pull up his socks really high, like uh, uh, who's the who's Hunter Pence? Hunter Pence. I love Hunter Pence. That was the smartest thing. Make those make those knees you know as, as far away as you can from the strike zone. I don't know where those pants all the way down like Barry Bonds always used to. That is really funny. Uh, so I didn't realize that was why Hunter did that, but I always found it highly comical to watch him run around. Um, in that manner, and of course the the oddest the oddest swing, almost like the bumblebee the bumblebee of swinging. Uh, you know, his swing made no sense, and yet it worked. Um, what are some of the rituals 
or practices, even life hacks that have had a positive and measurable effect on your life? I don't know if I'm a ritual type person, you know, I mean, I, I try to be um, thoughtful in, in how I spend my time and what I do. I, I am a kind of a driven person when I'm, um, I want to improve on things, you know, with, for, for instance, for, um, for my residency, uh, when I started the, the med- medical residency in family medicine, I mean, I knew I was way behind everybody else in my class, all my other interns. Um, and from the day it started, I knew that my number one thing was after all the residency, I had to pass my boards. I mean, and, and that's no small feat. Uh, there's a lot of information you have to learn. And for me, it was a relearning because I hadn't just learned it. many of them. In fact, things had changed so much in 30 years since I had been through medical school and my original internship. Um, so I used to put on, I used to drive to work every day. I was about 20 minute ride. And so literally from the first day I put in CDs of a uh, board study questions and I would listen to them all day long. I, I went through the, the board course at least five or six times over the course of the next three years learning. I learned, I heard the same jokes over and over again, <laughs> exactly what the speaker was going to say next, you know, I, but it prepared me. And, and so when it came down to doing the, uh, doing the exam, I actually did very well. I very well on it. And I was very happy that I passed the exam and I passed my boards. And so I think that process is, you know, for football, it used to be, you know, the old preparation issue. I mean, I would study film. I mean, I, I was very thorough about knowing who I was going to play against and what the other team ran and what their tendencies were. And it just gave me a big advantage. And I think that's, you know, it's the whole preparing yourself for things makes a huge difference in life and what you're doing. So you would overlearn and maybe that would be one of your best practices. Don't just learn it, overlearn it. Yeah, I guess that's a good way to put it because uh, if you overlearn it, then you really understand it. So um, maybe some, on certain things I put way too much time into, maybe on the other things that I maybe don't spend enough time. I, I never really learned how to cook very well. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully I have a wife who, who does great cooking. And when I cook, uh, we know that that's not going to be the meal that she has made. So uh, some of my <laughs> like cooking, so but uh, that's not that will never be one of my strengths yeah so it sounds like one of your best practices i'm not going to call it a ritual but it's it's a best practice of overlearning any other best practices that have contributed to who you've become i think i mean i don't know if it's a best practice but i consider myself kind of a calm person generally i tend not to get too rattled Um, I think you know one of the biggest weaknesses people can is never nothing's ever as as good as it seemed, but nothing's ever as bad as it seems either. Um, I think even during this time of COVID, we have to all look at and say, yeah, it's a, it's a tough situation, but we're going to get by it. It's, it's going to get over. And so let's not panic. Let's not do things that we shouldn't, you know, that do the, do the things you're supposed to be doing. But I think even in a game, like one of the, the biggest problems I had always is if you have a bad play, you kind of want to harp on it, but you got to forget it and move on to the next one because otherwise it's just going to, it's going to feed on itself. So I think one of the things I did have a pretty good handle was I didn't get emotional about stuff. I always tried to keep myself under control. Um, and I think that makes a you know a huge difference in being able to you know perform under pressure. If you're, if you're playing in the, you know, the highest, you know, competition you can in the country, you have to be, be able to make sure that you uh, are always have your head together. And some of the players, I think they get out in the field and they get too emotional about stuff. There's an advantage to getting emotional, but also you tend to forget, you know, how to keep yourself aligned. Right. So I'd like to call that shake it off quickly and refocus. 
There you go. I like that one. And I think if you're a baseball pitcher, you got to do that. If you just, the guy just hit a home run on you, or if you just struck out, you got to be able to get up and get to bat again, or you got to pitch to the next batter. So in addition to having perhaps won the genetic lottery and having a calmer disposition in general, are there any thoughts that fuel that shake it off quickly and refocus? I guess I'm just fortunate. I was in me, you know, uh, no, it's just, I, I've just learned in life. You just can't let that stuff get to you. I mean, and not to say that I don't get bothered by those kind of things because I do. And I would, I gotta say, I would go home after a football game and I remember the plays even today, 30 years later, I still remember some of the bad plays I had. You tend not to remember the, the good ones. I am amazed. You talk to some coaches you're amazed that they will come up and talk about a play that they remember in a game 22 years ago against a certain opponent that they called. And you, you wonder what, how do they know that? The answer is it just gets, it gets into your, you're a psychologist. You probably know it gets burned into your brain somewhere into your memory cells and you kind of relive them a little bit. I still remember four or five plays that just kind of haunt me even today, 20 years after I've stopped playing 30 years after I've stopped playing. Um, but you just, again, you can't let those bother you while you're playing. You have to let them go behind you. So that's, that's the one thing I tell people. And, and the other thing is you can't, you can't um, uh, harp on your successes either. You can't talk about how great you have been and how great you are, because otherwise that, that doesn't leave you open to continue to improve yourself. You know, you're absolutely right. And everything you're saying dovetails perfectly with the research. The first piece that you're describing about the negativity bias, which we've been given from our ancestors who would not have survived if they didn't have that negativity bias in remembering what was bad because what was bad might kill them in the future if they didn't remember it. Uh, And with regard to becoming kind of bloated in our own estimation, well, then our self-concept is ruined and we're not willing to venture out and fail, which is the, you know, integral in all success is failure. Here you are practicing medicine in the midst of COVID something you could not have imagined. Does that add a, a layer of complication as you practice? So I work at the county hospital in Santa Clara County Medical Center. Um, that's kind of the, the, the center of the um, Santa Clara. In fact, Santa Clara County was one of the, one of the real first areas that, that COVID hit. In fact, some people think the first cases were actually in Santa Clara County um, before they came even more popular up in Seattle and some other areas. Um, our public system is really based on kind of what comes out of the county and their and the regulations by the county and the county health department. So we are probably at the core of Santa Clara counties and in, in, in a lot of the Bay areas and what's happening uh, on COVID. We, we, we take it very, very seriously. I think we've done a great job of trying to be careful and protective of the, the you know, um, providers, physicians, nurses, all the people are there. I think we've done a very good job of trying to not get them infected along with the patients. Um, I do remember it was a very interesting day for me because uh, we have to take call, what they call phone call one, one weekend a year as, a, as one of the providers there. And so I got assigned a, a weekend and I just picked one out of the hat in the middle of summer, you know, six or nine months ago. Well, usually you only have to handle two phone calls over the whole weekend. And I was, had plans, I was up in the Sierras to go hiking and doing all sorts of things. I got called over and over again to make phone calls to patients that had positive COVID tests. I had 42, 42 calls to make that weekend. Oh uh, and it was really interesting for me to, to see the range of some people. I call them back. I said, Hey, I just want to let you know, you've been tested positive for COVID. 
And they said, oh, my God, I was just having a dental procedure done. And they just told me I had to get tested. I'm totally fine. I have nothing wrong with me. And I said, "Okay, well, you need to stay quarantined for a period of time. And then I had another patient I called and I said, "Uh, you have any idea of how you were positive when you're discussing? He says, well, yeah, my dad just died yesterday from COVID. He's 80 80 years old and I've gotten it from him because I've been caring for him for the last two weeks while he's been really, really sick. Um, and so there's this whole range of, of what this disease has done to people. And I, I was, it was just eye-opening to me as I just talked to patient after patient uh, that was positive and what their experience was, were like. And it was, it, was, it was heartbreaking actually hearing some of the stories. I know one woman broke down crying on me because she was, she was a uh, food server and she said for sure that her, she was just coming in for a routine procedure and got it tested she was feeling completely fine, but she thought she'd never be able to work again because the, her employer would would fire her and never let her back into work again. I kept saying they can't do that. That's against the law, you know. Um, so the, the impact it's had on people in their lives and not just the illness itself, but the finances and their work and their families. You know, some of these people were living in families of seven or eight people. And of course, when one gets it, almost all eight of them would get it, you know. And so... And the impact isn't just about um, the disease itself and what it does and whether you live or die and whether you get over it, but the long range impacts that we're seeing. I was just reading the Wall Street Journal today about um, this COVID, post-COVID syndrome where so many of these doctors and nurses have these symptoms that are going on and on for months and months afterwards. And I think that's what people that don't take this disease seriously don't realize is it's not just, you know, the president of the United States, you know, he survived it. But what we hope doesn't happen is that some of these symptoms don't start going on. They could be for months and months of fatigue and brain fog and things that people are describing. So um, it's really a it's really this very unusual disease that we've never really seen before. And the impacts we won't know what this disease does till years from now, probably the impacts of it. Sure. And I can't help but think about the integrity of being up in the Sierras with your family hoping to have some really good quality downtime and then you're swamped with 42 calls. And I'm not sure I was going to have just maybe one call for a high potassium level or something that somebody said their, you know, their, their Coumadin level was a little off and I was sure. quickly give them a quick answer and then go out on my big hikes. There was two beautiful hikes I missed while I was up in my room answering call after call after call with all my friends and family down there. So. And I'm just thinking about duty and uh, integrity. And here you are, you have the means to not necessarily work as hard as you're working, if at all. And yet here you are slogging it out because it's the right thing to do, I'm guessing. What is the overarching principle that has you sacrificing your family time and attending these 42 calls? Well, I'll start by saying I certainly picked the wrong weekend because (laughs) after I told my own boss, uh, I said, hey, he asked, how was your weekend? I said, well, I had to make 42 phone calls. He said, what? Nobody's ever made more than two. And uh, I said, yeah, so they they have a new system. So now those get routed to somebody else. So you don't have to answer them. So I wish I'd been on the week after that. But but I, I have to tell you, it was an incredible learning experience. It just just opened my heart to hear these stories of these people, what they had been through with this right in the middle of COVID. This was one of the peaks that was going on again with COVID, as you probably remember back then. I do. Yeah. So, um, so you know, I mean, I, yeah, I missed a couple of hikes that day and I'd, I'd love to have gotten them in. But, you know, I, I felt like this was my duty. This is what I signed up for, you know. Um, 
And so I'm, I'm doing it now. I'm only work half time. So I still take Thursdays and Fridays off. So I have other things that I like to do on those days. So, and I usually have pretty good weekends, so I can't complain about the two or three days that I have to work a week. But I, when I am working, I do take it pretty seriously. Well, I've only got a couple more questions, but one of them, I have to go back to England and Italy. You made a very good decision by my standards of deciding to go overseas. And I understand for recruitment uh, at the NFL, perhaps not such a great decision. How has that decision in, in, in some way increased your worldview or contributed to who you are today? So, again, I had a great example. My older brother was a... Uh, you know, All-American at Stanford for two years. Um, you know, he was a great college football player. He never quite made it into the pros. I'm not sure why. Um, it always surprised me when he was drafted very highly and then never really, really stuck in the NFL. And that's why when he didn't make it, I told myself, gosh, I'm a free agent. What are my odds of making it? But his junior year, he, he walked into his coach and said, I'm going overseas. I'm going to, to England and going to Germany. And I'll be gone for six months. So I just wanted to give you a heads up. And so he gave me the courage to, to, to do it. And Stanford back then in the, in the 70s and 80s was probably a little more open to those kind of things. I don't know how hard it would be for, for people to go now. I think maybe they can go for one quarter in the winter when it's cold and football is a little bit slower. But it was something that I had always wanted to do. I just felt it was a, you know, it was important to see what other cultures are like, live other cultures too. I had to actually, I didn't qualify on the, uh, on the language requirement because you had to have a certain number of, you know, a year of, of Italian. And so I just had to go learn it on my own. So I got a book and started learning it and, and listened to tapes all the time and passed out of the first, first semester so I could get to the second semester so I could actually qualify to get there. Um, but I loved it so much after, you know, I hitchhiked out through Europe when I was in 20, my 20s. I, uh, I uh, you know, slept out in farmer's fields. I had a backpack and uh, it was pretty cold in the winters and above myself a lot. It was a very uh, educational experience. I can say looking back, I was never going to call my parents for money, even though I was running out of money completely. I'm sure they would have been happy to send it to me, but I was fixed on this was what I was going to do at that stage of my life. Uh, maybe it was a little bit crazy, but um uh, but in the end, I, I learned a lot. And then later on in life, um, I'd always wanted to go back. So my wife and I, uh, when we were first married, went to, to Italy and I coached football there. I found a friend in between the medical school and uh, the, the, the book learning of medical school and the clinicals. There was, there was a little gap for me and the football season had just ended. And so I went over for four months and uh, I, my job was from 8 to 11 at night, three days a week in Bologna, Italy, coaching a kind of a semi-pro league that they had there and we had all the time free so i studied my for my boards and i uh, we traveled all around europe together and then i went back later and went to england too and uh, about four years later did kind of something kind of similar in england so i've been really fortunate to be able to spend time living overseas and i think it's just an incredible experience Every, everybody should spend some time if they did it change it. your worldview oh well, yeah i mean you 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 hear what you're you for so sheltered in our environment here what people think and what people think of americans in europe oh my gosh it's it's not what we think of ourselves and i think you know particularly in our current situation you know the way they're looking at how we're handling COVID and other things and politically that's going on you know what we think of america and what other outsiders think is probably a very very different vision it's eye-opening <laughs> you got to get outside the glass and look back in the glass and or into the fishbowl you know i mean we're in the fishbowl moving around but being on the outside of the fishbowl looking in is a very different view 
And uh, so I really encourage anybody that does that. And I, fortunately, a few of my kids have been able to do that. And they, they've gone to Italy themselves and really appreciated that studying over in Italy. E ancora parla italiano? Um, ho dimenticato tutto. <laughs> I'm in love with Italy and its music. I, I just completely obsessed with Italian music, particularly Giovanotti. But, um, uh, you know, as I listened, uh, there were, this is my second to last question I've got to ask, because you seem to have two superpowers that you may or may not be aware of. One of them is time management. And the other is seeing unconventional, <laughs> you see unconventional paths to get what you want. You see un- unconventional paths to get what you want and you execute on that. They're unconventional. Yeah, I guess I don't follow sort of the norms on some people, although I never consider myself a high risk taker. I tend to like try to calculate and do a lot of calculation. And sometimes the nickname for me on the 49ers, my friends used to always call me with Harry Reasoner. I never wanted to do something. I had to go think about it and process. And you know, I wasn't the guy that just did things, you know, and if, even when I played, I, I always tried to follow the rules and not try to break the rules, you know, because I think you want to stay inside the bounds. But every once in a while, you got to go outside your your comfort zone because that's the only way you can be accomplish something in life. And you got to know when to take those risks or not take those risks. So, True. Can you tell me a little bit about your time management practice, though? Because you seem like a paragon of time management. Oh, I'm terrible at time management. Come on. I'm just very committed and um, I, I know what I have to get done and somehow I get it done. So, um, but no, I, I'm really not a great time manager to be completely honest with you. So I, I, I end up wasting a lot of time and procrastinating on things and not planning way ahead of time like I should. Um, um, but I always seem to work really well under pressure. So I always get the job done when it needs to get done. So funny that you say a procrastinator and, and uh, working well under pressure. Joe Montana was actually my patron saint when I was in college for turning in late papers. I figured if Joe Montana can turn around the game, then I can turn around this paper and get it in on time. <laughs> Well, it's all you have to you have to hit the deadline. So, you know, it's kind of like your taxes. You got to get them in by April 15th or whatever it is. Otherwise, there's going to be a penalty. So I'm pretty good at making sure I get everything done on time, even though I get I get my best work done when I'm under pressure and I have a time frame that has to get it done by. And it sounds like you're also very clear on what the objective is. Yeah, I think, you know, what do they always say? There's urgent things in life. There's important things in life. And so you got to be focusing your your time in the upper outer quarter. And those are the urgent, important things and not the things that aren't urgent and not important. You know, Absolutely. Uh, and that's that is one thing you have to kind of base your life around to uh, make sure. But you also have to make sure you get everything done, too. So Agreed. So. If you'll allow me, I am actually going to call you something of a renaissance man. You, you're a pilot, you're a golfer, you're a father, you're a football player, and you're a physician, among other things, as well as a venture capitalist and a president of an organization. You've done all these things. When people are talking about you 100 years from now, God willing, let's say your, your, your children's grandchildren are remembering the great Milt McCall, uh, I, I'm using that modifier, I apologize. For, uh, uh, what do you hope they'll say? How do you hope you'll be remembered? So, you know, it's really interesting you say that because I don't care about my legacy. You know, I know a lot of people that their life is built, you know, great people want to build a legacy so that they're remembered 100 years later, 200, you know, the great presidents of the United States, Abraham Lincoln and George Washington have these incredible legacies. And I think there's a lot of people that when they get to a certain 
space in their life, they want to create a legacy that they're remembered by. And I don't know what it is. I just don't have that in me. I, I just want to live my life the way I'm living and make sure that I affect the people that I can that are around me. And when I'm not here, hopefully they have other things to think about that are more important, unless there's something that I could have taught them that maybe they can, you know, help themselves out later on. But it's interesting. Legacy is just something I've never really cared about much in life. You know, what's so funny to hear is uh, Steve Kerr gave me the exact same answer. Mm. Both you and he share that in common. So I'm going to pivot and ask it differently. (laughs) What effect do you hope to have had on the people who matter most to you? Yeah, look, I think think people need to build a base in them. They have to have good fundamentals. They have to have good values. I'm a very big value person. You know, I mean, your values are what, what create what you do in life. And you establish those values very early on. You establish them in your kids, hopefully, and you teach them values so that when they're older, they'll have those values. And when they make decisions, you know, they don't have to think very hard because they've already set their values. And that's what's going to make a difference to them or your grandkids or whatever it is going through. So, you know, I have my own values. They may not be the same as other people's. And we all have to establish our own values of what's important to you and what's not important to you. Um, I feel like it's taken me, you know, I've been an evolution um, through my life of just supporting what are the important things in life and what are maybe less important. What's important to me, what are important to the people around you, the people that you influence in life. And uh, I, I hope that I can teach other people that, you know, the values that I've had are, are important to me. I have I was taught values by my my family, my father and mother. I don't necessarily agree with all their values. They have very different perspectives and things, whether it's religious, political, or other things, but I respect them for their values. I may have different thoughts about them, but um, they have theirs. And I think that's really important to have values and set those and have priorities in your life. So I, I'm sorry, this is actually going to be the last question instead. What are your North Star values? Well, look, I think you need to be honest to yourself about things. When you're making decisions about things, should I do something or you need to be honest to yourself about how is this going to affect other people? How is it going to affect you? How is it going to affect your, your the people that matter to you the most? How is it going to affect people around you? Um, you know, when you're making decisions in medicine, there's always decisions you have to make. If you're in business, you have to make decisions. I, I just always believed in business and I was running companies that you had to do the right thing. You had to be honest in what you're doing. You know, you couldn't do things that were right on the edge all the time. Because if you live on the edge and you live in those gray areas and you're constantly there, you're going to move yourself outside of those gray areas and you're going to start doing things that later on you shouldn't have done. So I do think it's really important to to ground yourself in truth and ground yourself in honesty and ground yourself in you know, righteousness. And those are the things that are going to matter in life later on. And you hope that you teach your own kids to do that because in the end, that's what's going to make you successful in life. It's going to make you happy. It's going to make you a good person to be around. And uh, there's many, many things in the world that kind of want to pull you away from that. Um, and I, I really believe that's in the end, that's going to be the right way to do things. So. Absolutely phenomenal. Milt, I'm so grateful to you for taking time to speak with me and share your thoughts with my listeners. And uh, uh, this has been just great. Well, it's been nice to meet you uh, on Zoom here and I look forward to going. I'm going to have to go listen to Steve Kerr's uh, podcast with you now, now that you've told me about that, because he's an incredible guy who's done just incredible things in life. And just to be in the same category as him is pretty special for me. 
Yeah, you and he share a lot in common. And when you hear Jeff Rosen's, uh, you'll also hear uh, a, a kindred spirit as well as Brian Macbeth, who uh, was interviewed early on during COVID. But oh. thank you so much. This is Dr. Adam Dorsey thanking you for listening to Super Psyched. If you know anyone who might like it or who might benefit from listening, share it. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe.